Well, good morning, everybody. Can I add my welcome to that you've already received from the other Chris? I'm also Chris, and if we've not met before, if this is your first time with us, it's great to have you here, and uh, I want to add my welcome to that that you've already received. We're launching into this new series uh, today that's going to take us through the next few weeks called Resolutions, and we've been asking, we, Hannah and I were in the studio, for those of you who are joining us on the live stream before the service, and we were talking about New Year's resolutions. Chris was talking, I know, in here about that as well, about whether you've made any New Year's resolutions. It's that time of year, isn't it, for New Year's resolutions. And some of us may have made some and some of us uh, may not. But it's that time of year when, if we're thinking about resolutions, we maybe become painfully aware of where we are not, who we are not, and what we would like to be different about our lives. It's the season of self-improvement. If Christmas was the season of well, whatever Christmas was the season of for you, joy, stress, family, whatever it might be. If Christmas was the season of that for you, then maybe the new year is the season for self-improvement, for how can we be better versions of ourselves. And of course, that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing to reflect on where we are and what we might do differently and all that kind of stuff. I have a journal that I use most days, and at the new year, I always take a little bit of time in my journal to think back to the previous year and what's been good and maybe what's been more challenging about that, and to look ahead to the coming year and think, well, what, what could be this year, or what would I like to be this year? And that's good. The problem is when we're thinking about that and when we're thinking about New Year's resolutions and all that kind of stuff, we can very easily get very self-absorbed because it's all about us, all about where we're not or what we're not like or what we'd like to do differently and not really very much about the world around us. And we're asking today and indeed throughout this series is, is there a better question? Rather than how can I be different is there a better question that we might be asking? And we're going to focus through these next few weeks on that better question. A, a little bit of a kind of spoiler alert. Yes, we think there is a better question. Otherwise, it's going to be a really short talk, right? If the answer was no, well, we could all pack up and go home. So we think there is a better question. We're going to unpack what that better question is. And I'm going to, again, just give you a heads up about this, a warning about this. It's going to be uncomfortable. The question may well be an uncomfortable one for many of us. It should be challenging for all of us. And it may even be a bit disturbing, this better question. But I think that's a good thing. Because have you ever noticed that nothing really changes whilst we remain comfortable? Whilst we're in the place of comfort, nothing really changes. Just pause, think for a moment about the people you respect or admire the most. Either people that you know or people that you've read their story or you've been motivated by or inspired by. The people that you respect or admire the most. Literally, five seconds, think about that. Now, with that person in your mind, is that person in your mind that you're grateful for, that you're inspired by, in your mind because they have been able to maintain their ideal weight throughout their lives and that's what inspires you? I suspect not. I suspect what inspires you about those people is that they have made a difference. Because normally what inspires us is not the fittest people we know or the slimmest people we know, but the people who have made the biggest difference in our lives and maybe in the world around us. 
People who've been able to take themselves out of where they're comfortable into a place where they're actually able to make a difference. And that may well have been uncomfortable for them or challenging for them. If this is your first time with us uh, at uh, Andover Community Church, or if this is maybe uh, a time where you're exploring faith, you're, you're thinking, I'm not quite sure what I believe, whether I'm into all this God stuff or not, but you're wanting to explore questions around that, then this is a great time for you to be here because it's going to be challenging. But I suspect that's why you're here, or at least part of why you're here. And if you're a regular with us, I really hope that's why you're here, because you're here because you want to be challenged. We want to be challenged. If you're exploring faith, maybe one of the reasons why you're exploring faith is because you recognize that maybe there's something more to life than you're currently experiencing. Maybe there's a bigger story and a bigger purpose to be exploring and to be finding than the experience you're currently having. Maybe that's why you're exploring faith. Well, you're so welcome uh, to explore that with us. And I think this series is going to help us all to think about a bigger picture, a bigger question, and a bigger story that we're being invited into. And if you're a regular around here, if you're a regular part of our church community, well, here's what I think. I think we're ready as a church community for a bigger challenge. I think we're in a place as a church where we can push one another and challenge one another to go to another level in our following of Jesus, which is what we're all about. And we have plans through this series and indeed over the next few months to challenge and inspire each other to, I hope and pray, go to another level in terms of our following of Jesus. So let's start today then by asking, instead of resolutions that are all about us and are actually quite self-absorbed, whether there's a better question for us to be asking at this time of year. And to find this better question, I want to go and look at an ancient story of a character, a man who existed, who lived. It's a historical story as well as being an ancient story. And it's the story of leadership, of vision, of passion, of fire in the gut, and making a difference. And it's the story of a guy called Nehemiah. And we find this ancient story in the Old Testament part of the Bible. And before we get really dig around in the first bit of Nehemiah's story, I want to set a bit of context for how and where we find Nehemiah in terms of human history, because this is really important and speaks into why this story of Nehemiah is so important. So let's just go all the way back to pre-Nehemiah. God decided that he wanted to establish a group of people to be a light to the nations, a group of people that would be called the people of Israel. Israel, a group of people that would live in relationship with God and show other people what it looked like to live in relationship with God and to be a light and a witness to the world. So God established that group of people and partway through their history, a few hundred years after they were established, they were led by some people who did some really awful stuff and that led to all sorts of problems for the people and such that eventually the land that they were living in was split into two separate kingdoms. It divided because of the way that they were being led and, and all the stuff that was going on. So they split. The people of Israel, around 931 BC, split into two different kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. 
And the kingdom of Judah was in the south. And it's that that we're interested in for our story today. A few hundred years later, after that split, around about 600, 605 BC, the Babylonians invaded the southern kingdom of Judah. And many of the people of Judah, including people from Jerusalem, which was in that southern kingdom, were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. So they were now in exile in Babylon. Now, we've got to fast forward another 70 years, and we arrive uh, at the Persians, and this is where we encounter the Persians. Now, for 70 years after uh, the people were taken captive and taken back to Babylon, basically, everything shut down in terms of the faith community of the people of Judah. They had centered their religious faith and practice around the temple in Jerusalem, and now they couldn't do that anymore. Think about a 70-year-long COVID lockdown that we kind of experienced for a short period of time where we couldn't gather together, and we had to find a different way as church communities to practice faith, to engage with God, to connect with one another. Well, that's what they'd had to do. Because the center of their worship had been the temple. There was a temple-based worship system, and now they could no longer access the temple. They had to find a way for 70 years to live in relationship with God very differently from how they'd experienced it before. Well, then, 70 years on, around 539 BC, the Persians invaded Babylon. So now you've got a whole other group of people who invade Babylon and take over Babylon. So now the people of Judah have been enslaved by uh, the Babylonians, and now the Babylonians have been taken over by the Persians. The Persian king was a guy called Cyrus the Great. And actually, Cyrus, when he conquered Babylon, he discovered all these people from all these different groups from all around the place. And he said, I set you free. Go home. Go back to your lands and back to your people. Now, not all of them did. Many of them did. And then 90 years after that, around 450 BC, is where we discover Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was still in Persia. Nehemiah's family had not traveled back to Judah. And Nehemiah had grown up in Persia. In fact, it may well be the case that Nehemiah had never been to Judah or Jerusalem, never seen his homeland and the homeland of his people, and that he had been in Persia all his life. And Nehemiah was working for King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And just in case you're a fan of Gerard Butler, let's get a bit of Gerard Butler in here, in in case you would like a bit of that. Artaxerxes was the son of Xerxes, King Xerxes of Persia. And King Xerxes of Persia, Persia we know about because of the historical story of the 300 Spartans led by King Leonidas at Thermopylae, who stood against the invading Persian armies when they tried to go on and invade Greece. And if you've seen the movie 300... Gerard Butler plays King Leonidas and stands against Xerxes and all the armies of Persia and single-handedly, well, not quite single-handedly, but turns them back anyway. So Artaxerxes, the son of King Xerxes, who was repelled by the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae. So that's where we find ourselves. And all of that to say, this is history You know, there's all these books in the Bible and all these books in the Old Testament part of the Bible, and some of them are history, and some of them are different kinds of writing, poetry, and all that kind of stuff. And it's important that we understand this so we understand what we are reading. And today we're reading a historical account of the life of Nehemiah. Right, so let's actually now get into all of that by way of introduction. 
And for those of you who are keeping time, we're about halfway through the allotted time for this talk, and I've only done the introduction so far, so take with that what you will. Um, so let's get into the story of Nehemiah. So this is Nehemiah, his book in the Old Testament part of the Bible, 450 BC, uh, Nehemiah stuck serving the king uh, of Persia, Artaxerxes. He says this, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Again, just to pause here to say we get a historical reference here. Again, tells us we're reading history because we get a, a, bit, a, a name reference, a geographical name reference. So Susa was kind of like the capital of the kingdom of Persia, and Nehemiah is serving in Susa. Okay, let's keep going. Hanani, one of my brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So this kind of party come from the homeland, if you like, the center of Nehemiah's faith and home and people. And he questions them about the plight of his people back in Jerusalem and back in Judah. Nehemiah is interested in what is going on in his homeland. He is curious about the state of things. He's not apathetic or unconcerned about the plight of others. So he asks, what's going on? And then we read on verse 3. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So things are not good back at home. Things are not good in the center of our faith and the center and the hub of our people. In fact, things are in disgrace. In fact, people are defenseless and vulnerable because the walls have fallen down and it would have been the walls that would have protected them from other invaders and people coming to steal from them. They are in disgrace. What is Nehemiah's reaction to this going to be, I wonder? What would your reaction be? What is our reaction when we look at the state of the world, the plight of others, as Nehemiah was doing here? When we look at the world and the state of the church, when we look at people turning their backs on the God who loves them and has a bigger story for them, when we look at the cost of living crisis or at wars and refugees and all that's happening in our world, are we curious about it? Are we asking questions about it? Or are actually we apathetic and unconcerned? What is our response? Apathy, unconcern, or curiosity. What happens for Nehemiah is this. Nehemiah says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's heart breaks for the condition of this people. You see, for Nehemiah, this wasn't just news. This wasn't just, well, that's interesting. Sucks to be you. It wasn't just, God bless you wasn't just, I'm sorry to hear that, but there's not much I can do. Stuck here in Susa with three square meals a day, a great job, wealth, access to the king. I'll pray for you. That was not his response. His response was to allow his heart to break. Nehemiah felt this deeply. It stirred him, and actually it stirred him out of his comfort and took him to a place of great discomfort, a place of weeping and of mourning. It took him to a place of challenge and pain and turning to God. 
And you see, as he does that, a passion starts birthing up in him. It starts stirring and burning in him. He gets fired up. But it's not easy. It's not comfortable. It's disturbing. And Nehemiah then prays, and we have a record of his prayer. This is his prayer. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. He starts his prayer reminding God of who God is, or at least that's what it looks like. But I just want to say, I'm pretty sure God knows this. Actually, this is more about reminding Nehemiah of who God is than it is of Nehemiah reminding God who God is. I think God's got that covered. But Nehemiah is reminding himself as he prays to God and reminds God of who he is, he's actually reminding himself of who God is. So he goes on to say, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. He says, this is our fault. We have not done what we were supposed to do. This is our fault. He goes on to say, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. Once again, I think this is interesting. Once again, God is very capable of remembering the instructions that he gives to people. He doesn't need Nehemiah to remind him. This is Nehemiah reminding himself of the things that God has said. And Nehemiah is saying and praying, God, I remember who you are. I confess that we have messed up. But I also want to remember the promises that you have made. God promised that things would be different. I just want to pause there. And, and ask this, if you're a person who prays, is this what your prayers look like? That maybe your prayers involve you praying and reminding yourself of who God is, maybe even thanking God for who God is. And then maybe your prayers involve some kind of confession, God, I mess up, I'm sorry, please can I have your forgiveness? That I don't always do what I should do. Forgive me, Lord. So, God, this is who you are. I'm, re I'm reminding myself of who you are. Thank you for who you are. I want to confess that I don't always get things right. And then I'd really like it if you would change the world. Here's a list of all of the things that I would really like you to do. If we're honest, is that what our prayers look like? Again, just maybe pause for five seconds. And if you're a person who prays, just reflect on that for a second. Is that what your prayer looks like? Is that what my prayer looks like. Well, look, let's see how Nehemiah goes on. He says, They are your servants and your people who you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. These are the people, Lord God, that you have set us to be. And then he goes on and says this, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him in favor of the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. See, here, 
Nehemiah adds something else onto his prayer that goes beyond where we often stop in our prayers if we're people who pray. See, we pray, God do it. Nehemiah says, God enable me to do it. Give your servant success. And that is a radical difference in a way to pray. Instead of saying, God do it, God give me the strength to do it. God work through me to do it. See, that's an extraordinary difference. What if we are supposed to be the answers to many of the prayers that we pray? What if God, in his love and grace and mercy towards us, would say to us, yeah, yeah, I, I could do that, but you wouldn't get to experience what it's like to see me at work through you. What if actually it's about us being strengthened and equipped by God to be the answer to the prayers that we pray? I think this is a remarkable thing that Nehemiah does. And by the way, it was deeply uncomfortable for Nehemiah to pray this prayer. What Nehemiah was about to do was deeply uncomfortable and deeply challenging and would require huge sacrifice. You see, Nehemiah, we're told here, was cupbearer to the king. This was a really important job in the royal court of the leader of the entire kingdom of Persia, which was massive. And Nehemiah has daily access to the king. Nehemiah is living in the wealth and comfort of the palace. Nehemiah is an important person with great status. If he, and if you read on in the story you'll discover, if he is the one who God uses to go back to Judah and go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls and to lead the people, that was going to mean huge sacrifice and taking him way beyond what he was comfortable with and where he was comfortable into a different kind of place. And by the way, before any of that happens, he's got to go to the king and say, please can you give me a leave, a leave of absence? You see, in this day and age, people did not go to the king to ask for favors. It was the king who did all the asking. In fact, let's be honest, it wasn't asking. It was the king who did all the demanding. People didn't go to the king and say, can you do me a favor? This was hugely risky. See, this could have cost Nehemiah his life. This moving beyond what was comfortable and moving into a new kind of place for Nehemiah, there was no guaranteed outcome. I mean, again, so often we look at, back at these stories, and because we've got the whole story, we know the outcome. And if you've read the book of Nehemiah, you know it, it happens, and Nehemiah goes back, and he doesn't only ask the king for a leave of absence. This is great. He also cheekily asks the king for all the materials to go back and build all the stuff. It's remarkable. And he gets to do that, and they rebuild the walls and all that, and, and it's amazing. But Nehemiah doesn't know that at this point in the story. And Nehemiah says, God... Let me, give me success, let me do this. Work through me to be the answer to this prayer. He has no idea what the outcome would be. It was going to be a huge sacrifice for Nehemiah. It might even have cost him his life, but he was determined to be the answer to his prayers. And what's so amazing about all of this is that 450 years after this happens... When Nehemiah has indeed gone back and rebuilt the walls and restored the temple and all of that kind of stuff, 450 years later, the city of Jerusalem and the temple at the heart of it would be the place where Jesus showed up and where Jesus launches in to the work that he is going to do. 
See, Nehemiah had no idea at this moment what would happen. And he had no idea, even after his story unfolds, that he was part of this much bigger story that 400 more years after his death would still be lingering and be a part of the story of what God was doing in the world. See, Nehemiah asked a better question. Nehemiah asked the question, what's breaking my heart? What's firing me up? And what can I do about it? And how can God help me do something? So I want to ask the question as we think about our New Year's resolutions, what are we resolving to do or change this year? And is it too small a thing? Is it all about you? And be honest, and if you were really honest, you'd have to say, this is really quite self-absorbed. This is all about me and about my life. It's about who I am not, but who I'd like to be. It's about who, uh, where I am not, but what I would like to change. It's about doing my life differently. And if we're honest, let's say, is there a better question that we could be asking? You know, if you really want to make a difference, if you really actually want to become a better you, do something to make the world a better place. That's the best way to become a better you. And the place to locate yourself in terms of wondering, what is it that that I should be doing to make the world a better place? The question is this, what fires you up? What burns inside of you? What sits and stirs a passion in you that is uncomfortable and disturbing, that maybe even leads you to weeping and mourning? What is it that does that in you? What can't you get off your mind? For Nehemiah, it was the state of the city of Jerusalem and the walls and the temple. What is it? for you? What is it for me? Instead of going into this new year asking the question that most people will be asking, which is, what can I do about me and what should I do about me? What if we asked, what should be done around me? Or what should be done through me? And if you're a Jesus follower, and if you want to be a better Jesus follower this year, well, do something to follow Jesus the one whose heart broke for the needs of others. The one who, by the way, instead of praying, God do something about the state of the human race and their relationship with you. Instead of praying, God, do something about that, will you? Instead prayed, God, enable me to do something about that, will you? Give me the courage to do that with you. If you know the story of Jesus, you know there's a night before he's arrested to be crucified, to be murdered, for the, uh, for the state of the world, for demonstrating the love of God for humanity. The night before, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying, and he's praying so passionately and so fervently, we're told that the sweat was like drops of blood dropping from his head onto the ground, and he was praying, God, please take this away from me. Don't, don't make me have to go through this. But then he resolves, and he comes to a place and saying, but God, not my will, but your will. You see, a prayer of huge discomfort, of huge sacrifice, a deeply disturbing thing that Jesus does. But it's the same thing that Nehemiah does. It's the same kind of prayer that Nehemiah prayed, which is not God do something, but God strengthen me and work through me to do that thing. Give me the courage to sacrifice myself, Jesus prayed, for the sake of others. 
What if we prayed those kind of prayers? What if that's the better question to be asking? Instead of, how can I be different? How can God work through me to make the world different? You know, and if we don't do this, here's my prediction about what we'll do instead. We'll sit around and watch TV and blame everybody else for everything else. That's what we'll do, honestly, won't we? But people who blame things don't change things. You know, I think there are two kinds of people in the world. There are commentators and creators. You think about a sports event for a moment. You know, there's two different lots of people at a sports event, at a, at a game. There's the people sitting in the stands and in the commentary booth telling everybody else what's going on on the pitch and often critiquing that and telling people on the pitch what they're doing wrong but doing absolutely nothing to progress the ball down the pitch towards the goal or the try line. Absolutely nothing, making no contribution to that whatsoever. And then there are people on the pitch who are creating who are actually moving the ball down the pitch, moving the ball towards the goal or towards the try line. They're the creators. And that's, you can categorize most people in the world into those two different categories, by the way. People who love to commentate on the state of the world and people who actually like to change the state of the world, who actually move the ball down the pitch. And you see, a church community is and should be a great place to create, not commentate, on the world. It should be a place where we inspire one another to action, where we create, because the plight of the world should stir something in us. It should fire us up. And if we long to see change, then the church community is a great place to start to work that out. What stirs many of us corporately around here at our church is that we believe following Jesus makes life better and makes us better at life. And that there are so many people in our streets and in our towns and in our nation that have turned their backs on that offer, an invitation from Jesus to do life better and to do life in relationship with him. What lights a fire that burns really deeply in many of us around here is that we believe that the story of God and his love for people gives a bigger story that's worth investing our one and only life in. And we long for that story and that love and that investment to be invited and to, for others to be invited into that thing. We long for that story that has brought so much love and good and meaning into our lives to be shared with others. And what breaks our hearts around here is a version of Christianity that says, show up once a week, tick a box and say, I'm done. I've done what I need to do to follow Jesus this week and for that to make absolutely no difference to our lives or the lives of those around us or the world around us through the rest of the week. That breaks our heart and it stirs something in us about changing the conversation and doing something different. And it needs to change for the sake of our world and for the sake of our church and for the sake of the Christian faith. And we're going to talk a lot about that over the next two or three months. We're going to raise the bar on our challenge of one another about that over the next two or three months because we're convinced we need to change the conversation about what church is for. We're convinced that if we're committed to following Jesus and living our lives according to his teaching and his example, then we must be actively involved in bringing about change in our world. You see, people responded to Jesus and they flocked to him in droves because he made life better and the world better and his followers are supposed to do the same. And people who are actively following Jesus make things better. They do. You can't actively follow Jesus or say you're actively following Jesus 
and not make the place that you live, the people that you live with, the people that you work with, and the world around you a better place. You can't actively follow Jesus and not seek to be making the world better. Because Jesus taught that devotion to God is measured by devotion to others. And so often, sadly, Jesus' followers look at the church, their church, and say, feed me, do Christianity to me, impart information for me. But that's the wrong conversation, and it needs to change. It should be inspire me, embolden me, give me the opportunity to do something, pray for me, to be so full of passion that burns so brightly for God that I am willing to do what it takes to change the world for God, to make the sacrifices that are necessary. So the question for this new year shouldn't be, how can I be better? It should be, how can I make the world a better place? And the question for a church community like ours should be how we help and inspire one another to do just that. That's the better question. And that's what we're going to continue to think about together over the next few weeks. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you invite us in to a bigger thing and a better question. We thank you that you invite us to step out from ourselves and into something bigger. Lord God, forgive us for where we have prayed those kind of prayers where we said, God, thank you for who you are. Here's where I messed up. Would you do something about this? And that's where our prayers have stopped. Lord God, help us to be the kinds of people that go to the next place in our prayers, the bold place in our prayers, the uncomfortable and disturbing place in our prayers, where we pray, and God, give your servant success. Work through me. Give me the courage and the willingness to get uncomfortable, to make a difference. Help us to be those people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.